everybody. My name is Kurt, and uh, bear with me with this weird voice that I've been gifted with. I had to laugh. My brother lives in Ottawa. He wanted me to call him up and uh, give him a call, so I, I called him up. I said, hey, uh, hey, Russ, uh, sorry, I'm not feeling too well, and I can't talk so well, uh, so bear with me. He says, I can't hear you. I said, I can't talk so well. I'm sick and unwell. And then he laughs. Anyhow, I just thought it was funny. What a jerk. Uh, anyhow, got to love family. But uh, would you pray with me? I'm going to need a lot of prayer to get through this. Uh, so bear with me in advance. Let's pray. Father, uh, we acknowledge <clears throat> that a day is coming when you will gather all nations who oppose you to attempt to battle against you at Jerusalem. And we are thankful that you will win that battle. Jesus, you are coming again to usher in your kingdom and renew and rule the world forevermore. Help us to be ready for your imminent return at the end of human history. I pray that when you do return, that we will not be surprised, but rather ready. Enable us to place our confident and ultimate hope in you. I pray that we would reach a point where we're just not worried about the end because we know how it's going to end, and it's going to end well. Uh, for those that trust in you, Jesus, we thank you for that great hope and promise. Help me, Lord, to get through this sermon today in a way that's actually somewhat engaging and clear. Uh, I need your, your help and your anointing in this moment to preach your word well in a way that is uh, centered on Christ. In Christ's name, amen. See what I mean? It's going to be rough. Anyhow, as it turns out, today's the final message. I think there might be some cheering uh, kind of erupting that this is the final, or finally done, this book of the Bible. It's called Zechariah, and the theme of the book is that it gets better. And as, you know, it's been tough. It's a tough book to get through, not an easy book to sort of understand. And even today's chapter, we don't fully understand what's going on um, in great detail. But I believe that this book, it's helped the church, it's helped uh, us sort of not be dogged by discouragement, to get our focus on it will get better. You know, there's better times ahead. It's been better, uh, good and helpful for me personally to have that hope in front of me. No, no matter what happens in the interim time, as we live in this broken world, this world will be renewed. Um, it's going to be restored. Jesus is going to make everything new. And we get to be a part of that uh, process of being made new in the end. In fact, that's the title for today's message is simply The End. Kind of, It's very fitting because this is the end of the series. But we're also talking about the end times. We're talking about Armageddon. We're talking about the last days and Judgment Day, and on and on it goes. You know, when I was a much younger man, when I was younger, uh, in and around the year 1990, I became reawakened to the things of God. It was a really remarkable time. Uh, but there's no better way to describe the time of my life in that day and age as being on fire. You know, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Uh, but it was I, I was like on fire for God, and it was really amazing. And I remember at that time, I was reading and reading and reading as many Christian books as I could get my hands on. I just couldn't feed my soul enough. Um, and so I ran out of books at home to read, and so I decided to go to the local Christian bookstore. And I think it was called the Shepherd's Hut or something like that. It was kind of a weird name. Anyhow, this local Christian bookstore, and I go in, and I got money in my hand. I'm ready to buy, I'm ready to spend money on books that will help me in my uh, walk with Christ. And what do I find front and center in this Christian bookstore? Well, right there as I walked in were books, multiple books about the end times, about Judgment Day. They were yellow. 
They were red. They had big letter and writing on them. And the question is, why were these books about the end times front and center in the Christian bookstore? Um, well, it's because those books sold and continue to sell very well. There's a lot of bling. There's a lot of pop with those end times books, you see. And that's why they're front and center, so that they can make some of this. And, you know, anyhow, I'll let you wrestle with that spiritual conundrum. But being a young man, and, you know, I was newly renewed Christian, well, hook, line, sinker, they got me. I was in. I was like, man, I'm all about the end times. I gobbled up this book by Hal Lindsey uh, about uh, the end of the world, or Armageddon. And then uh, there's a Canadian author. I think he's still writing these types of books. Grant R. Jeffrey uh, had a series of books about the end times. And I went home. I read all these books, as many books about the end times as I could, because, you know, I found the end of the world a very fascinating topic to study. I mean, we could be living in the end times. And if we are, what a time to be alive, to witness with our own eyes uh, sort of the culmination and the end of human history, these world-changing events. Wow, we get to get to see that. And I remember, or I remember Grant R. Jeffrey claiming, uh, he made the very strong and the very confident claim that he figured, uh, so this is the early 90s, the Gulf War was happening at the time. Uh, you might, Some of you may remember the Gulf War. And he figured that the world, because of the timing of the Gulf War, well, the world was going to end in January 1st, 2000, okay, Y2K. And uh, basically, the time of the, quote, Great Tribulation would begin in 1993, and then halfway through, something would change three and a half years into it, according to the book of Revelation. And then, you know, then it would end in the year 2000. So for me as a young man, this is very exciting uh, stuff to watch. Watch for the signs. Watch for the signs that these Christian authors were confidently prophesying would happen absolutely. Well, what happened on January 1st, 2000? Did your computer crash? Your computer didn't even crash. I mean, nothing bad happened on the year Y2K. Okay. Now, after seeing that nothing happened, the world did not end on Y2K. Um, and the big letdown that I experienced as a young man, did I stop reading those hyped-up end times books uh, about the end times? Yes, I did. And that was a very good idea. Probably one of the most helpful things for my soul. Okay, But here's, here's the problem. The problem began when the pendulum swung. So I went from being all about the end times and the pendulum swung all the way over here to the point where I didn't even think, want to think about the end times anymore. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, put me on the way on the other side. I didn't spend any time thinking about the end at all. I had my whole life in front of me and my whole career in front of me at that stage. And uh, it was almost like I was acting as if the, the world would never end, that the end times just would not happen, didn't need to worry about it or think about it at all. Is that a good position to take as a Christian? Well, God, via Zechariah in chapter 14, I believe he would say no to that pendulum swing position. So here's my thesis. Basically, despite the fact that you might be one of these Christians, by the way, and I'm not here to judge you, but a lot of Christians overly obsess about the end times, and then a lot of other Christians never think about the end times. Where's the medium? The middle is over here, okay? So let's not go to either extreme. Let's not go to either extreme. Um, throughout the Bible, uh, the Lord reminds us the end is coming, and we need to be ready for that. We need to be actually quite mindful that the end of human history is going to happen at some stage. Okay, so that's my thesis. It might be a weak thesis, I don't know. But anyhow, <clears throat> bear with me. Let's get into it. Uh, let's begin to sort out what is happening in chapter 14. In verse 1, 
if you have this in front of you, Zechariah says, Behold, a day is coming. Anytime the word day is used, it's kind of code speak for the last day uh, or the last age of human history, the end times. This might be a literal day or it might be a bit of a longer extended period of time. But the key thing is, Zechariah says that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And he's going to gather all the nations that oppose him and his people. He's going to gather them and allow them to gather in and around where Jerusalem is today. And those nations will do battle and to do war against Jerusalem. They will actually take the city and they will do terrible things to Jerusalem's inhabitants. Not unlike what happened to ancient Jerusalem. It happened Jerusalem has been conquered several times, by the way, and it happened in and around 600 B.C. uh, when it was under siege by the Babylonians, and then they defeated Jerusalem. They did terrible things to its inhabitants. They basically starved the city, and then they carted off about 70,000 captives back to their own nation of Babylon. And so Jesus is, uh, sorry, Zechariah is saying, it's going to happen again, but worse. Now, at the moment, as Zechariah is describing what is the end times here, the remaining people of Jerusalem after this defeat and after all this mistreatment by these nations, um, despite them feeling like all hope is lost, our enemies have defeated us, they've, they've obliterated us, what happens next in Zechariah? Well, he says God comes, he intervenes, he fights against these nations. This is likely the Lord Jesus uh, it says he will stand on the Mount of Olives. Where was What was happening to Jesus in the, his earthly time? What was he doing on the Mount of Olives? What happened with his, how did he engage with the Mount of Olives? Well, that is precisely where he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then Jesus was arrested at the Mount of Olives. Later, he was crucified. So this is an important spot in the life of Jesus. Well, Jesus has come back. He's now standing on that same Mount of Olives, And then the Mount of Olives, this is very dramatic stuff, will be split down the middle from east to west, forming this wide valley, this passageway through which God's people will run away. They will flee uh, in order to escape their enemies, okay? Not unlike how God used Moses to part the Red Sea, and then Israel escaped through the Red Sea to get away from the approaching Egyptian army. God is a miraculous Rescuer. At which point, the runaway, running away from these enemies through this valley, they, they run away to safety in the Lord's mountains. The Lord will then come with all of his holy ones. That's probably code speak for his angels, his armies of angels. And the insinuation is God's going to do serious battle against these nations who oppose him, who oppose Jerusalem. And that leads us to point number one in your notes. Simply prepare for the Lord's return. Prepare yourself for the Lord's return. Okay. As I mentioned previously, there's a lot of Christians who are really obsessed with predicting the end times. Uh, sometimes they're more obsessed about looking for the signs and figuring out precisely when the world's going to end. They're more obsessed with the end times than they are obsessed with Jesus and the mission of Jesus which is to reach people for Christ and to share the gospel with lost people. And that, that is, that's troubling. I used to be one of those people. I was all about the end times, didn't care about my lost friends and family over here. So in thinking about how, you know, here we are gathered as a church family. 
how should we prepare for the Lord's imminent return? Uh, what must we do to be prepared? Let me submit to you a few key teachings. If you want to learn a lot about the end times, uh, the, one of the best places to go for practical advice is Matthew chapter 24, and you look to what Jesus says about it himself. Jesus tells us to keep in mind a few things in relation to the end of the world, and I'm going to share a few of these things. I think there's three, might be four. These are in your notes. Matthew 24, what do we learn there? What Jesus teaches us about the end of the world, first of all, is that no one knows when but God. No one knows when this is going to happen except for God. Here's what he says, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, that's the day on God's calendar that's circled, which is the, end, the, the last day, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And as a side point, we now assume that Jesus knows, because at that time he was still on earth. Now he's at the right hand of, of the Father in heaven. He probably knows. But the point is, when the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or even when our own evangelical Christian brothers and sisters, they try to circle a date on their own Google calendar, you know, for the end of the... It's going to happen, what was that? May 21st. I don't know what year this was. 2011, I think? 2010? And they circle a date, and they try to set the date. It's going to happen on this date. And then I love the thing, the Bible guarantees it. Bam! There it is. Well, did the world end on that day? The answer is no. Would we stop doing this? Only God knows. Only God knows. Let's not try to be God. Like, come on. That's the first thing. Second thing Jesus teaches us about the end of the end of the world is, yes, we should look for unmistakable signs. Unmistakable signs is what I would argue. Spend more time. Just keep your eyes open for big, unmistakable signs of His coming. Then you do for the more debatable, the more speculative signs, such as, remember, the Gulf War. This Grand R. Jeffrey was convinced the Gulf War that was ushering in the end of the world. Uh, back uh, World War II, when World War II was happening, they said Hitler was the Antichrist. And if anybody matched the, the, the job description for the Antichrist biblically, it was really Hitler. I mean, but did the end happen after World War II? It did not. What about 9-11 and then the, then the death of Osama bin Laden and, you know, uh, escalating tensions right now between Iran and, and the U.S. and You see what I mean? Like, these are not unmistakable signs. Uh, anyhow, take a look at verses 26, then 29 and 30 that uh, Jesus says. He says, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign, there it is, of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Rather unmistakable sign. So when you see Jesus coming in the clouds, ding, and that's the last day, okay? That's sort of the, that's, that's my point, all right? But if you see the sun being darkened and the moon going away, stars falling, you know, again, then Jesus coming on the clouds, that's the unmistakable signs that we need to be paying attention to, okay? Other stuff, I don't know, speculation, I'm not sure there's much value there. Here's something else that Jesus says must first happen before the end, is simply the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Gospel must be proclaimed 
to all nations. Jesus says this in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There's an organization called the Joshua Project. It's a great organization. And their aim and their mission is to reach the remaining unreached people groups of the world with the gospel. That is good. You know, many of us wrongly assume, a lot of Christians wrongly assume that the, oh, the whole world has heard about Jesus, the whole world uh, has heard about the gospel. You would be very, very wrong if that's your position. The Joshua Project estimates that there are more than 7,000 people groups. That's just people groups, not people. How many people are in those groups? But 7,000 people groups, they still have not uh, heard the gospel but they have no access to the gospel, you see. No one near them even possesses the gospel. Like they, there's no internet, okay? There's no gospel translated into their language for them to understand, do you see? They don't have access yet. Uh, you know, they're still finding more and more uh, lost tribes in the Amazon jungle and other parts of the world. They're still finding more brand new people groups that have never been exposed to the world at all. You see what I mean? Uh, so let us spend more time. See, what, let us spend more time, more energy, more money, trying to reach those seven thousand people groups with the gospel, that they might be saved, that they might be transformed, than obsessing about the end times. You see, isn't that a better use of our time and money? Let us not spend money on these books. Let us spend money on mission agencies that send people to reach these 7,000 unreached people groups. The next one is, and this is the most important point that Jesus makes, uh, is simply to be ready. Be ready. Verses 42 to 44 here. Am I putting you to sleep yet with this sonorous, soothing voice? Uh, or just, it's a drone. It's more like a drone. Yeah, good luck. Therefore, stay awake, Jesus says. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Okay, Let me run with this word picture that Jesus gives us here. I want you to think of your own home right now. So try to picture your own home or maybe, maybe your own living room. And think of you know the valuables. You know, here you are in this gymnasium. All your valuables are currently in this, hopefully, the safety of your own home as we speak. So you got your flat screen, you got your laptop, you got maybe your, you left your smartphone at home. I don't know, but you got your clothes there, you got your PS4 there, maybe you got your car in your garage, maybe you got your jewelry in your jewelry, whatever. Okay, you got all, a lot of your valuables are at home in this moment. Okay, now imagine one night. Let's imagine you're actually at home. You're Upstairs, you are asleep. It's nighttime. You're in your bedroom. The problem is you have gotten lazy about home security. Sure enough, 3 a.m., what happens? A burglar breaks into the backside of your home, breaks into the sliding door there. He steals thousands of dollars worth of your stuff. He cleans you out, man, and he gets away. And you wake up in the morning, you come downstairs, and you're, psh, you're horrified. My stuff is gone. My stuff is gone. Stole my bacon, even. What a jerk. You've been robbed. 
You feel terrible. You feel terrible. You feel like, what was I thinking? Well, let's reverse the tape. Now, let's imagine a different scenario where that didn't happen to you. You didn't get lazy. Rather, you got very proactive, uh, exceedingly proactive about home security. You've got the door alarms installed. You've got the window alarms installed. You've got the video cameras going in multiple places. You've got the bat behind your bedroom door, and you've got some barbed wire wrapped around this bat behind your your door in your your bedroom. And then even better, you decide to purchase uh, and, and raise a hungry pit bull. And you train this pit bull basically to stay downstairs and eat any burglar that might break into your home. What happens? The burglar, 3 a.m., breaks in, but the alarm goes off. Ding, 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 ding. The videotapes are playing. You grab your trusted bat and you head downstairs to play some baseball, you see. And your friendly meat-eating pit bull is now chewing on the burglar's leg when you come downstairs. Puts a smile on your face. How do you feel? You feel happy, sort of. I mean, I, I say that I, I would never imagine doing that to anybody, by the way, I don't think. But anyhow, you feel, you feel like kind of pretty wise, well-prepared at ease. All is going to be okay, because that guy's not going anywhere. Here's my point. Be ready for the return of Jesus. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep spiritually at the wheel. Stay devoted to Jesus. Keep pursuing holiness imperfectly, but keep pursuing holiness. Keep seeking his Holy Spirit who lives within you. Ask him day in, day out, moment by moment, change me. Change me. Save me from me. Change me from the inside out. Then we've got to remind the ones that we love who are not yet Christians about the gospel. Here's Jesus. Here's the one you need. Here's the one you must trust to be saved, to be transformed. You know, the reason that we have to be ready is because no one, no one, no one knows the day or the hour except for God. So don't be caught not following Jesus when Jesus returns. Don't be caught not following Jesus when Jesus... You've been warned. You've been warned. Uh, let's now move on to verses 6 to seven, six to 11 here. A couple of you are still awake, so I'm, I'm, I'm finding some encouragement in that. What God, through Zechariah, is doing for us, he's painting a picture of the kind of, of good. There's, it was kind of negative already, but now it's, this is getting good. And he paints a picture of the kind of beautiful, wonderful, amazing changes that God will bring, quote, on that day. There's a lot of good that's going to happen on Judgment Day. And this is the day when the kingdom of God then becomes visible to us. And on that day of visibility, faith becomes sight. Well, then the usual rhythms of day and night and the usual rhythms of seasons, you know, fall and winter and so on, they will become no more. Why is that? Because, well, the sun and the moon are not going to be needed anymore. As the Bible says elsewhere, the Lord himself, when faith becomes sight, he himself is so glorious that he will become our light source. It's amazing to think about. He will be with us. So we don't need the sun anymore. Further, life-giving, living waters will flow out in abundance from Jerusalem all year long. This will be the day when the Lord will be king over all the earth. This new Jerusalem will be lived in by God's people forever. And never again will Jerusalem be attacked or destroyed. Jerusalem will be forever secure. I mean, this is a beautiful, good place for us to live in 
And this is what God is preparing for us right now in this moment. Jesus is right now in this moment preparing this new Jerusalem for you and I to live in if we're Christians. And that leads us to point number two, if you're following along in your notes. Simply place your hope, bank on this. Place your hope in the Lord's kingship over and future renewal for the world. I want to take a second to speak about uh, jails. I used to volunteer at the Pacific Institution uh, a couple years back. Did you hear about the Pacific Institution, though, in the, in the news? Somebody uh, rigged up a bow and arrow and had some drugs attached to it and shot it into the prisoner grounds for the guys to get access to. But anyhow, it didn't work. They caught the guy. But that's ingenuity. That's creativity. That's interesting. Anyhow, my bragging point is I used to volunteer there. I, I might have been hit by that arrow. I don't know. But uh, I digress. Jails and prisoners. Okay, so generally speaking, prisoners who get a life sentence with no chance of parole, no hope of getting out ever, how generally do these prisoners live? How do they generally conduct themselves in the prison if there's no hope of getting out? Well, generally they, they conduct themselves in a very self-serving way. You might say prisoners with no hope of ever getting out they are not typically model prisoners. But what about the men and women, though, who do have a chance of getting out, who do have a strong chance of parole? Well, generally, they do live differently. They are often on their best behavior. They don't want to do anything to mess up the parole date. Okay? They put their best foot forward. Uh, I, I want to get out of here. I want to get out of here. I want to get out of here. And so here's my point. That's the power of hope, do you see? That's the power of hope. Hope changes how you live. Would you agree? Hope changes how you live. It changes how you prioritize your life. Let me take a drink. I want us to think about this as a, as a church, Mercy Hill Church. Thanks to the scripture that God has given us here, we can know with absolute certainty how things are going to end. And they end very well. For people who trust in Christ, we can know with absolute we can bank on this with their lives that Jesus is currently preparing a place for us. He is preparing right now the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and it will be, bar none, the best possible place uh, in which to live, in which to thrive, in which to find joy in the universe. And it's because the King of Kings, the one for whom we were made, the one who made us, we were made to be in a relationship with this person, and there's no greater person than this. We get to be with him forever and forevermore. King Jesus will be giving us light, and he will be giving us good rule, and he will be giving us love every minute of every day to eternity. That's a good thing. Therefore, just like having hope for the future, it changes how inmates live in prison. Would you let this sure hope in Christ change how you live in this broken world? You know, the, the idea of reverse engineering your life. If you know that you're headed for the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem with Jesus, you reverse engineer your life accordingly because you've got this great gift of hope in front of you. The great gift is he's, he's given us a glimpse of the future. That's the gift. He's given us a glimpse of knowing how it's all going to end. What a gift. And we can reverse engineer our lives Accordingly, it changes our priorities. It changes how you spend your money. I mean, that's why people give to the church. is because of the hope 
It's like I'd rather spend money on the mission of Jesus than spending on all this stuff that I don't really need that actually can't give me the soul satisfaction that I crave. Only Christ can give me that. that it changes everything. It changes your conversation, changes your marriage, changes your parenting. You tend to speak about Jesus in your parenting if that's the end because that's, really, that's what really matters. Anyway, I've gotten off course of my notes here. Uh, sorry about that, Bruce. Thank you to Bruce back there. You know, he's doing the slides. He's filling in for somebody today, and he prepares the slides each and every week, and uh, we're, we are very grateful. Let's now finish off this passage, uh, look at verses 12 to 21, overview. This is a long chapter, but we're going to do this in a very quick overview fashion. What the Lord shows us here is the kind of punishment and discipline that the Lord will dole out on his enemies, and these are the nations and the people and the individuals that oppose Jerusalem, that oppose God, and oppose the people of God. And if you were listening to what Ian was reading, it was dicey. It, was, it will be nothing good. It will be ugly. Um, plagues and sickness will strike them. The flesh will rot while they're still standing. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Tongues will rot in their mouths. I mean, this is really dramatic stuff and this will happen and God will strike his enemies with great panic to the point where they start fighting against each other they are so confused God can do that and there's multiple stories in the Bible of God doing this um, and he was going to do it again I mean that's God's all-powerful he can make his enemies fight against themselves piece of cake for God after all of this there will be some survivors from this discipline from God and the survivors from these nations will then be subjugated to God. They will be required to bring all their wealth to Jerusalem and then give it to God's people. Now, the next part is a bit hard to understand. Zechariah talks about the people of God celebrating the Feast of Booths. Remember that part? Now, in Old Testament times, there were three primary festival and feasts that were happening on an annual basis that God's people participated in. You know, it's possible we may be participating in these feasts in the future uh, in the New Jerusalem, but some scholars think we are. Other Bible scholars think we're not. We're not sure. So we'll just leave it at that. Then Zechariah talks about God's people offering sacrifices and boiling meat, etc. You know, and let me just clarify, the New Testament has made it crystal clear that these sacrifices, you know, animal sacrifices and boiling meat and stuff, uh, it's no longer required for God's people because of Christ's ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Once for all sacrifice, he paid for all of our sins, so there's no more need for animal sacrifices, you see. But here is the main point that I believe Zechariah is giving us. The main point is this. Even the bells on the horses have inscribed on them the words, Holy to the Lord. In fact, all the pots, all the bowls in this new Jerusalem will be what? Holy to the Lord. So there's no temple per se. The whole city seems to be this temple, okay? Because God's there. His presence is there, filling the whole city. And the point is, everyone, sorry, everything and everyone will be finally fully set apart. To be holy is to be set apart for God. We will be fully made holy for God in this new Jerusalem. Every single thing will be set apart for God, made holy, even objects, even things. And the point is, it's all about God in this new place. It's all about God. Every single thing, every single person there is to be wholly set apart for God. And that leads us to our last point in our notes, namely, 
pursue holiness for the Lord's sake in our everyday lives here today. If we're headed for a place where everything is holy, man, we should be pursuing holiness as a Christian. Let me quickly clarify something here. I'm coming in for a landing, so you've done well hanging there, hanging in there with me with this crazy voice. But let me clarify. The New Testament of the Bible is clear. The only that only Jesus makes us holy. We can't make ourselves holy in and of ourselves. We can't. Jesus alone lived our perfect holy life for us in our place when he lived on earth 2,000 years ago. Then he died as our perfect and holy sacrifice on the cross because he was the only human who never sinned. And he was the only one worthy enough to die on the cross in our place for our sins because he was the God-man. And then three days later, he rose from the dead to defeat Satan, sin, and death forevermore for us. Then, when we respond to Jesus with repentance of our sins, with faith and trust in the gospel, and then by being baptized in water as Jesus was, we become holy to the Lord. What a gift. Jesus has done it all. We just open our hands to receive this gift. We're holy to the Lord, saved from our sins, saved from our unholiness, changed forever. And yet, despite this holy identity and status that God has given us, the Bible is still clear. We are still to pursue everyday holiness in our everyday lives. We are still to pursue sanctification, which is the process of becoming more and more holy as each day goes on, little by little. Okay? Jesus, by his Holy Spirit in us, continually scrubs our soul from the inside out, and we are shaped more and more into the holy character of Jesus so that we look, sound, think, and act more and more like Jesus. So it's a process. My point is, here's my point. If everything, remember this image of heaven, if everything and everyone in the New Jerusalem is holy to the Lord, if this is the place where every true Christian is headed, then why would we not choose to pursue holiness in our everyday lives, to become more and more holy to the Lord? Why would we not just live out of this, like be who we already are in Christ? Why would we, would we not just live out of this holiness that we have already been gifted with? Why would we not daily, moment by moment, trust in God the Holy Spirit's power within to help me to live an increasingly transformed holy life that honors you? So, as I close, let us, let us trust in the power that's there, the Holy Spirit's power. Help me, Lord God, to passionately pursue holiness for your sake because it honors you and it worships you. Uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> uh, God, thank you for this uh, amazing hope you've given us. Uh, Lord, use us as a family on a mission to share the hope of the gospel with those who are not yet Christians. Uh, I pray that we would uh, live out the gospel in a way that is winsome, but that we'd also speak the words of the gospel in winsome ways that are compelling and just not weird. Um, I, I pray that with this hope in front of us, that it would cause us to live our lives differently, that we would live our lives in such a way that we would not be surprised when we see the unmistakable signs of your return. But I pray, Lord, if someone is here who is hearing the warning and maybe heeding the warning that you've given us here in Scripture, I pray that they would not delay, but that they would rather respond to you, Lord Jesus, with open hands to receive the free gift of salvation uh, and, and being made holy that you provide. 
and that they would have a conversation with me or with some other Christian that they can trust. Uh, Lord, we come to the time of the Lord's Supper today to remember and celebrate all that you've done. We love you and we praise you for your ultimate self-sacrifice on the cross. In Christ's name, amen.